Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1104 with a release and air date of Saturday, April 25th, 2020. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1104 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL suggests even more creative ways you and your club can participate in this year's field day activities. We will have some ideas for you. Ballot counting is postponed in four ARRL section manager elections. The FCC is seeking World Radio Communication Conference advisory members. Ronan O'Rahilly, founder of the pirate radio ship Radio Caroline, has passed. We will have a retrospective. Amateurs worldwide stay at home and self-isolate because we are all experts at it. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Space Weather Prediction Center has published its official updated prediction of Solar Cycle 25. Amateurs in Japan gain expanded privileges on 160 and 80 meters. An internet router was jamming GPS signals in a part of France and... 108 years ago, a Welsh radio amateur copied the plea for help from the Titanic. He told local authorities, but nobody believed him. Who is he? We will tell you his story in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment, along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will tell us everything you need to know about internet background radiation and of his love of old-fashioned keyboards. Australia's own Anno Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will tell us about his first digital contact. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill continues in part two of the trial and tribulations of the original technician class licensee. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will answer the question, what should I bring with me up the tower? All of that and a whole lot more is straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our special Lockdown Quarantine Headquarters remote studio here in Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, where we're seeing some beautiful signs of spring, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our news bureau in downtown Syracuse, New York, in Armory Square, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our masked, gloved, and UV-lighted emergency radio outpost in New York's Catskill Mountains, I'm Don Hulick, K2ATJ. And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where Thor's hammer has been heard often as we transition into spring weather, 
I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Leading off our news, this year ARRL Field Day promises to be a unique iteration of this annual event with many individuals and groups coming up with new and interesting ways to adjust their approach. As an event, Field Day is structured to be versatile and can be adapted for any situation. For more information on how you or your club can become creative and participate in this year's Field Day event, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, who files this report. Many groups have asked how they can adjust their field day planning to address social distancing guidelines that may still be in effect in many areas of the country at that time. Some are concerned that gathering at their traditional field day site may not be feasible or safe. Instead of participating in a group event this year, consider operating as a Class B, C, D, or E station utilizing your own call sign. ARRL will include club names for all participating stations in the published results, so the efforts of your club's members can be acknowledged. While ARRL will not publish an aggregate club score, seeing the name of your club associated with various individual member results is certainly a way to highlight your club's activities. You might also consider having an intra-club competition among members, seeing who can make the most contacts during the event. You can award prizes or distribute certificates at a club meeting. This can be a fun way to bolster the activities of individual club members, even though they can't all gather at the same location this year. You might also set up a field day challenge with rival clubs in neighboring communities. See how many members of each club can get on the air from their own stations and participate in the event. In addition to bragging rights, perhaps certificates to the top-scoring individual entries in each category can be presented as part of this intra-club camaraderie. One club is planning to conduct its field day as a 4A club group, with participants spaced to comply with social distancing guidelines within the required 1,000-foot diameter circle and operating individual stations. This club also plans to set up a get-on-the-air station. The club's plan is to have the GOTA coach at the field day site while GOTA operators participate via remote link. Another club is planning to set up a remote controlled station at its usual field day site, with club members taking turns controlling the station from their homes. The club is developing a schedule that outlines when each member of the club will be at the helm via the remote link. Whatever approach you take to this year's field day, Keep up to date with the current guidelines issued by local and state health agencies that may impact your proposed operation. ARRL invites your stories about the interesting and creative ways you're planning to use to adapt your field day operation. Share these on the ARRL Field Day Facebook page. For the latest news and updates, visit the Field Day webpage. During these unprecedented times of social distancing and staying at home, the ARRL Ethics and Elections Committee has postponed ballot counting for four contested section manager elections. For more details on this story, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting for his report from League Headquarters. Since March 23rd, ARRL Headquarters staff have been working remotely under the Governor of Connecticut's mandate 
which is currently in effect through May 20th and may extend into June. The ballots for the section manager races in Illinois, Indiana, Oregon, and Maine were scheduled to be counted on Tuesday, May 19th, as directed by the ARRL rules and regulations for section manager elections. Due to the circumstances, ARRL interim CEO Barry Shelley, N1VXY, asked the committee for an extension that would allow ballot counting to happen as soon as practicable before mid-June. Though this extension was granted, it does not change the Friday, May 15th deadline for ballots to be received at ARRL headquarters. Standard operating practice dictates that any ballots received after this deadline will not be counted. The governor's mandate and social distancing practices do not affect this section of the election rules. Terms for election winners are scheduled to begin on July 1st, 2020. AWRL hopes to see the governor's restrictions relaxed in time to have a team of tellers inside headquarters to count the ballots and publish the election results in enough time that the terms of the office will not change. The committee will have to decide the course of action should any unforeseen circumstances not allow the ballots to be counted by mid-June. You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine of the air. This Week in Amateur Radio. The FCC has announced that it's looking for individuals or entities to serve on its World Radio Communication Conference Advisory Committee. The committee will provide advice, technical support, and recommended proposals in the run-up to World Radio Communication Conference 2023. In particular, the committee will focus on international frequency spectrum issues identified on the WRC 23 agenda. The committee will be charged with gathering data and information necessary to formulate meaningful recommendations for these objectives. The FCC seeks applications from interested individuals, orgs, institutions, and other entities in both the public and private sector. Selection will be based on factors such as expertise and diversity of viewpoints necessary to effectively address the questions before the committee. Applicants should describe both their specific interests and their expertise or experience as it relates. It's anticipated that the committee will meet in Washington, D.C., up to three times per year in preparation for WRC 23. Submit your nominations, including contact information and the statement of qualifications by email to the FCC no later than May 29, 2020. Some sad news this week. From the U.K. comes word that Ronan O'Reilly, the founder of Radio Caroline, has passed away near Greenore in County Louth, where the station's original boat was kitted out in 1963, eventually going on to launch from the North Sea at Easter 1964. Rocking Europe from the North Sea, this is Radio Caroline. Having merged with a rival pirate Atlanta Radio, a second ship, Radio Caroline North, dropped anchor off the Isle of Man with the signal thumping into Ireland. This is Radio Caroline North. Resuming its transmissions for another day, we sincerely hope that our programs and products will please you throughout the day. Radio Caroline broadcasts from its studios on board the good ship NV Caroline, which is permanently at anchor in international waters, three and a half miles off the Bay of Ramsey, Isle of Man. 
we invite you to stay tuned for the early morning show, program of lively listening pleasure, which will get underway in just a few minutes. In the meantime, welcome to another new day, and good listening to you from all of us on board Radio Caroline. Both the South and North ships continued broadcasting until 1968 when they were forcibly towed away by a Dutch maritime supply company who claimed that Ronan owed them a considerable sum of money. The station returned from one of the original ships in 1972, but closed in 1980 when the MV Miamigo sank during heavy North Sea storms. Against all the odds, Ronan masterminded another watery comeback in 1983 aboard the MV Ross Revenge. Caroline's 27-year unlicensed career ended in 1991 following a sustained campaign against it by the British, Belgian, and Dutch authorities, which culminated in the former Icelandic trawler being raided and equipment removed. It now operates as a legal medium wave and online station featuring several of its old North Sea staff. A flamboyant fixture on London's King Road for many decades, in addition to his broadcasting interests, he managed James Bond star George Lazenby and executive produced Marianne Faithful's Girl on a Motorbike film. His 1960s business partner, Phil Solomon, ran Major Minor Records, who, courtesy of judicious Caroline Plugging, scored major hits with Tommy James and the Shondells, Money Money, The Days of Pearlie Spencer by Belfast's David McWilliams, and the Dubliners' Seven Drunken Nights. Ronan was the proverbial larger-than-life character, always scheming and planning his next move. He revolutionized commercial radio in Europe with Caroline, gave Stax and Motown some of their first plays on this side of the Atlantic, and in the early 70s formed the Loving Awareness Band, who morphed into Ian Dury's Blockheads. Ronan was not just the man who founded the most famous offshore pirate station, he was the man brave enough to use that station to promote and talk about love, understanding, and positivity instead of using it to make money. Farewell to Radio Caroline founder Ronan O'Reilly, the man who made the impossible possible and changed radio in Europe forever. Well, we have all been hearing that we should stay at home and self-isolate. But what do we do when we are at home? For many of us amateurs, that presents a great opportunity to get on the air and chat to others and make new friends. Something that most of us have been saying for a long time that we didn't have time for. Well, time is now in abundance due to the current pandemic. Recently, the Ipswich and District Radio Club in Australia reacquainted themselves with their sister club, the Maple Ridge Amateur Radio Club in British Columbia and Canada. Through the efforts of Dave VA7DBJ and Greg VK4GJW, an on-air meeting of club members was organized through an IRLP link-up utilizing each club's IRLP repeater on both sides of the globe. With Paul VA7XQ doing an excellent job of net controller, the cats were herded, introductions were made, and both clubs ended up learning a lot more about each other and how we were all making our way through this uncomfortable time. Members from the Maple Ridge Club chatted with members from the Ipswich Club, and a great time of chatting and fellowship was had by all, 
lasting for nearly two and a half hours. Feedback from members on both sides was very positive, with everyone enjoying their time of getting to know one another and reinvigorating the Sister Club partnership that was first formed back in 2011. Both clubs have vowed to keep the contact going, and this can only be a great thing for amateur radio and global friendship. So, don't be bored at home. Get on the radio. Don't wait for conditions to improve. Use the technology available at your fingertips and explore the world via IRLP or Echolink. I am sure you will find many like-minded people out there looking to pass the time in home isolation. And maybe, like the Ipswich and District Radio Club, you could form a friendship and partnership with another club on the other side of the globe. Don't forget, amateur radio has been practicing social distancing for over 100 years. All of us are experts at it. Effective on April 21st, Japan radio amateurs have new privileges on 160 and 80 meters. The new allocations are 1800 to 1810, 1825 to 1875, 3575 to 3580, and 3662 to 3680 kHz. AWRL Life member Kenji Rickatake, JJ1BDX slash N6BDX, said the new regime allows Japanese radio amateurs to operate FT8 on 80 meters on 3574 to 3577 kHz, and on 160m from 1840 to 1843 kHz, as well as Whisper on 1836.6 kHz. On 160m, the allocations are 1800 to 1810 all modes. This is a new assignment. 1810 to 1825 CW only, 1825 to 1875 kHz, all modes as secondary service, also a new assignment. 1907.5 to 1912.5 CW and data. On 80 meters, the allocations are 3500 to 3520 CW only, 3520 to 3535 CW and data. 3535 to 3575, CW, phone, and image, and data only permitted for making contacts with a non-JA amateur. 3575 to 3580, all modes as a secondary service, also a new assignment. 3599 to 3612, CW, phone, image, and data. 3662 to 3680, all modes as a secondary service, that's a new assignment. 3680 to 3687, CW, phone, and image. 3702 to 3716, and 3745 to 3770, and 3791 to 3805, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Frank Donovan, W3LPL, notes that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Space Weather Prediction Center 
has published its official updated prediction of Solar Cycle 25 in the new interactive Solar Cycle Progression Graph. The updated prediction is based on the results of NOAA's Solar Cycle 25 prediction panel. The Space Weather Prediction Center forecasts a solar maximum of between 105 and 125, with a peak occurring between November 2024 and March 2026, Donovan said. There is broad consensus that solar minimum is ongoing this year, or may have already occurred, and that Cycle 25 will have no major changes in the level of solar activity compared to Cycle 24. As Donovan explained, for many years, the Space Weather Prediction Center's solar cycle predictions have used the Royal Observatory of Belgium's International Sunspot Number. The Space Weather Prediction Center's official solar cycle prediction now uses its own sunspot number. The International Sunspot Number is typically about one-third lower than the Space Weather Prediction Center's sunspot number. While this is the Space Weather Prediction Center official Cycle 25 prediction, it's important to note that there's still divergence among various forecasting methods and members of the space weather forecasting community. Most forecasts and forecasters agree that Cycle 25 is likely to be within plus or minus 20% of Cycle 24 and is likely to occur between 2024 and 2027. For more information, go to the Springer Nature website. The ARRL New England Division Convention, hosted by the Northeast Ham Exposition at its new location in Marlboro, Massachusetts, has been postponed until November 6th through the 8th due to the current pandemic. The show had been scheduled for July. Ham Exposition Chair Bob DeMattia, K1IW, said many logistical problems exist with holding the convention in July, even under the most favorable scenarios. We believe it is unlikely that Massachusetts' ban on large gatherings will be completely lifted by the end of July, he said in an April 18th announcement. Even if it were, we believe attendance will be severely impacted due to lingering and quite appropriate caution. DeMattia said nearly all exhibitors indicated they were unwilling to commit to any date earlier than June. The convention is subject to penalties for cancellation, he continued. The penalties increase as we get closer to the convention date. By moving to November, we move out of the schedule on these penalties. This will allow us to reassess the viability of the convention in early August. By then, we will have further insight into prevailing conditions. Demetia said the November weekend was the only alternative for the show. In light of the pandemic, the ARRL Public Relations Committee has extended the nomination deadline for the Philip J. McGann Memorial Silver Antenna Award until Monday, June 15, 2020. With more information on this award, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from Newington. The Philip J. McGann Memorial Silver Antenna Award is presented annually to a radio amateur who has demonstrated success in his or her public relations efforts on behalf of amateur radio and who best exemplifies the volunteer spirit of the award's namesake, the journalist Philip McGann, WA2MBQ. McGann was the first chairman of the ARRL Public Relations Committee, which helped reinvigorate ARRL's commitment to public relations. To honor McGann, members of the New Hampshire Amateur Radio Association joined with the ARRL Board of Directors to establish an award that would pay lasting tribute to the important contributions he made on behalf of amateur radio. 
Public relations activities for which the McGann Award is presented include efforts specifically directed at depicting amateur radio in a positive light in the media and for the general public. This may include traditional methods such as issuing news releases or arranging interviews, or by less traditional methods such as hosting a radio show or serving as an active public speaker. The ARRL Board of Directors will choose the award winner at its July 2020 meeting based on recommendations from the ARRL Public Relations Committee. The committee has responsibility for reviewing the nominations and supporting material. Eligible nominees must be full ARRL members in good standing at the time of nomination. The award is given only to an individual and nominees may not be current ARRL officers, directors, vice directors, paid staffers, or members of the ARRL Public Relations Committee. Nominees must not be compensated for any public relations work involving amateur radio, including payment for articles. A nominee's efforts must fit the definition of public relations and recognize the promotion of amateur radio to the non-amateur radio community. Nominations must be received at ARRL headquarters by the close of business on Monday, June 15, 2020. Nominations must be on an official entry form. Anyone can make a nomination. For more information, contact ARRL Public Relations Committee Chair Sid Caesar, NH7C, or send an email to the ARRL Headquarters Public Relations Mailbox. On April 8th, AWRL Washington Council Dave Seidel, K3ZJ, and AMSAT North America Executive Vice President Paul Stotzer, N8HM, discussed with senior FCC International Bureau staff by telephone the FCC's draft report in order on mitigation of orbital debris in IB docket 18-313. The amateur representatives told the FCC staff that two aspects of the draft regulations are of particular concern and would seriously hinder amateur radio's future operation in space if adopted as proposed without the relatively minor changes that we propose. First, both the AWRL and AMSAT requested a revision to propose language that otherwise would allow only private individual licensees to indemnify the U.S. for the operations of an amateur space satellites. AWRL and AMSAT requested that satellite owners be added to that provision. The amateur representatives, noting that amateur radio licensees may only be individuals under the amateur rules, stated that in no other service would an individual be required to personally make a similar indemnification and that it would be difficult to impossible to find an individual amateur radio licensee willing to bear that risk. Second, ARRL and AMSAT asked the FCC to delay by three years the proposed effective date of April 23, 2022 for a rule that would require satellite operators to certify that space stations be designed with the maneuvering capabilities sufficient to perform collision avoidance for spacecraft designed to operate above 400 kilometers in altitude. Citing the long lead times to design and construct amateur satellites, ARRL and AMSAT suggested that a more reasonable date would be April 23, 2025, and noted that, based on recent past years, only an estimated three to five amateur satellites likely would be launched during the extra period. 
We do not disagree with the purpose of this requirement, they told the FCC staff, but the proposed effective date is unreasonable in the case of amateur radio satellites. The new effective date would allow time for amateur spacecraft designers to adopt to this new requirement, they said. Citing the value of amateur satellites to the development of the commercial small satellite industry and student participation in such projects, AWRL and AMSAT said a strong and robust amateur satellite service will help inspire future developments in satellite technology. The requested changes to the draft RNO would help ensure that amateur radio continues to have a future in space and contribute to the public interest on an educational, non-pecuniary basis. The FCC was expected to consider the RNO at its April 23rd open meeting. Members of the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee asked the FCC to delay action on the mitigation of orbital debris in the new Space Age rulemaking proceeding. Science Committee members raised several concerns, including the timing of the action during the current pandemic. Given the unprecedented circumstances surrounding the pandemic, the immense effort undertaken to recover from it, and the potential for the FCC proposal to exacerbate impacts on U.S. industry and international competitiveness at a critical period in our nation's history, we hope that you will agree to postpone future action, the letter reads. The lawmaker's letter also raises concerns with the rule itself, with the rulemaking process, and with the potential for regulatory and legislative inconsistencies, noting significant stakeholder concern. The proposal contradicts executive branch policy and is inconsistent with the existing and proposed legislative action, the letter states. Regulatory action by the FCC at this time, without clear authority from Congress, will at the very least create confusion and undermine the Commission's work, and at worst, undermine U.S. economic competitiveness and leadership in space. The letter also suggested that the FCC action could duplicate efforts now underway by the Department of Commerce. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Routers, it's a question that I get asked a lot. What's the best router? And it's kind of like saying, what's the best computer? I mean, there isn't a best computer. Uh, there's a best computer for you. There's a best router for you. But it's for you. And so there's no blanket. I can't say uh, with a blanket recommendation that oh well everyone should just get this and be done with it i wish i could that'd be a lot easier but really as always you kind of have to ask some questions about how you're going to use it uh you know what your issues are why you why you want a new router what wi-fi issues you have there are a couple of basic things you must have in my opinion uh, in a router and if your router doesn't currently have this you should get a new router probably and at least if you're getting a new router, you should make sure that your new router has a few features. Number one on the list is over-the-air firmware upgrades. And I know that maybe that's a that's a little confusing phrase, but you already have that on your phone, right? 
your phone automatically updates. You have it on your laptop, on your desktop. Your computer automatically updates. Sometimes it'll say, uh, the phone usually does, hey, I've got updates. Do you want to update now? And you say yes. But that, And that's fine. But you want these updates pushed to you automatically. Most routers, until recently, you just never updated it. And if, if you were having problems, you, it's like the BIOS updates on older computers, which, by the way, are also now over-the-air automated. And in the old days, you'd say, oh, let me see if there's any update to the firmware on the router. Huh. No, you can't do that anymore because routers are the first thing, the one thing that you have sitting on the public Internet. That means they're the bearing the brunt of all the Internet attacks. There's constant attacks going on against these routers. Yes, your router. Because things like WannaCry, you know, that's the ransomware. Uh, these are called network worms because once they're on a machine, then they go out and try to infect other machines. And they become part of what my friend Steve Gibson calls Internet background radiation. It's just constantly going on. There's a virus out there that was, we believe, created by the Russians. Uh, we're not sure why. We think maybe they're trying to use it to for cyber warfare. It's called VPN filter. Remember the, a couple of months ago the FBI said everybody should reboot their routers? <laughs> That's because this... Uh, this malware VPN filter lived in the memory of your router, and if you turned it off, you know, unplugged it and plugged it in again, it would clear it out of the memory. It wasn't exactly the right advice the FBI gave, because it turned out that they could still get reinfected, even if you rebooted it. Really, the only real fix for this kind of stuff is a firmware upgrade. That the so you requires you to buy a router from a a manufacturer that's going to keep tabs on that software and update it regularly. And B, push it out to you because you can't be expected to go out and check. It's not your job. You, the router should uh, automatically update itself. And I would not buy, these days, I would not buy a router that doesn't. It's just, uh, it's just too darn uh, risky. In fact, I would extend that to say anything that goes on the Internet should be updated automatically. That's why Windows and Macintosh and Android and iOS are all updated automatically nowadays. It's just table stakes it's just the base requirement so if your router is not updating automatically well get one that does and if you're buying a new router get one that does so that's the first question you should ask there is a newer standard it turns out the you know every router of course and any decent modern router will have the ability to uh, put a password on the router and what's actually happening there is it's encrypting its traffic it's scrambling it it gets descrambled with the password that's important so that somebody who's in your vicinity can't snoop on what you're doing and can't join your network. So I hope that if you have a Wi-Fi router, you've turned on password protection. In general, it should be WPA2. And that's because the original password protection built into routers, WEP, was very badly designed and has been cracked. Turns out now WPA2 is pretty vulnerable. If you if you don't use a good password, it's not so hard to crack. So if you're using WPA2, don't use a – and I do this. I, 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 I'm going to change my ways. For a long time I thought, well, it doesn't matter how good a password I use on that. No, it does, turns out. So use a good password. Because what can happen now with even with WPA2 is somebody – they still need to be – able to see your Wi-Fi. They need to get it close enough, sit on your curb or whatever to get a bunch of packets. But they can download those packets, then go home 
and run a brute force cracker on them and get your Wi-Fi password. Now, nobody's going to do that to you. Why would anybody care that much? Right? So you're probably okay. But if you really want to be secure, use a long, strong password. That means it's very hard for them to brute force it. They can't crack it easily, even if they take it home and work on it for days and weeks and months. They can't get into it. If you use Monkey123, they'll be into it in a couple hours. <laughs> Maybe not even that long. So use a good password. WPA3 does not have this vulnerability. It's been announced it will be coming. And a modern router, a router you buy today, should be WPA3 compatible if it has a fast enough processor. So those are all things to keep in mind. You would like a router that can be firmware upgraded to WPA3 if possible. That'll give you more security. But it's not the end of the world if it doesn't. WPA2 is good enough if you use a nice, long, strong password. So what else should you look for in a router? Well, there are other considerations that may or may not be important. I usually like a router that is tri-band. So you remember the early Wi-Fi routers were 802.11b. That was at the 2.4 gigahertz band. There have been new updates to that, and then we're now at 802.11ac, and it can use both 2.4 and 5 gigahertz. And in fact, there are two different segments of the 5 gigahertz band that it can use. So that's a tri-band router. It uses 2.4 gigahertz and high and low 5 gigahertz. Why do you want three bands? Well, because in many cases, congestion is a problem these days. Not only are you using many devices, but so is your neighbor. Your neighbor's Wi-Fi is overpowering your Wi-Fi. One of the things, one of the problems with Wi-Fi is it's a collision-based network, which means if your Wi-Fi router starts sending data and, and your neighbor's Wi-Fi router starts sending data, your router will go, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to step on you, and stop for a random amount of time before it begins again. Two different Wi-Fi routers can't talk on the same frequency at the same time. So one will stop and politely wait for the other to finish. This is probably not what you want. Probably not what you want. So my suggestion is uh, <laughs> get a, a tri-band router. You're much more likely to be able to find a frequency that isn't stepped on by your neighbor. What about those mesh routers? Well, they're very expensive, but often they work well for people who are having problems because either they have so many devices attached to their Wi-Fi or more likely because they're so spread out. One Wi-Fi unit will cover about 1,500 square feet. If you have a 2,000 or 3,000 square foot house or more, you might need a extender. And that's what mesh does particularly well. There's plume, there's velop. There's, I mean, I can go on and on and on. There are a lot of manufacturers that make these. The other advantage of those is, in every case, they are over-the-air updatable. That's one of the things Wi-Fi mesh routers do, is they constantly get updates so that they work better on your network. It's one of the reasons you pay a little more for them. But you may not need it. If you have a small area, you're not having problems with Wi-Fi, you just want you know, maybe a little better speed or a little more modern router with better security, you probably can just get a simple Wi-Fi router. We'll be back with more from our tech guy, Leo Laporte, right after we take this quick pause for stations along the network to identify. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio.
Look at this thing. I have in my hands a piece of history. You know, one of the things about technology that's generally the case, uh, they called it Moore's Law, really, right? Uh, Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, said that the, the well, what he said literally was, what did he say? The density of transistors on a processor, on a chip, would double every 18 months. That's what he said. But it's often uh, translated into the power of a chip. The capabilities of a chip would double every 18 months. And that's roughly, roughly the same. And if, if, you, uh, if you understand doubling every 18 months, you understand, well, it doubles, and then in three years it quadruples, and then in, uh, in uh, four and a half years, it uh, eight times eight. And because it's doubling every year and a half, you know, it doesn't take long before you get up some pretty powerful stuff. And we've seen that, haven't we? And we're finally, at this point, I think, getting to the point where processors aren't getting much faster. They're not, it's, the number of transistors might be doubling, I guess, but uh, I don't think so. We get, we got the point now where there's so much density on the processor, you can't get much more dense. So in general, though, what that means is things get faster and cheaper, lower power. I mean, it's kind of a miracle. It's the miracle of the microcosm as George Gilder said. And it's what's powered Silicon Valley. And yet there are some things that don't follow that rule, physical things, like, I don't know, keyboards. Screens have gotten better, haven't they? Oh, yeah. You can't use a screen. Five-year-old, I was looking at an old uh, Apple uh, Mac, Macintosh Air, MacBook Air, and uh, that screen is uh, not a, what we call, what Apple calls a retina display. It's not a very high resolution. And you can see it's like blurry. It looks like it's a little out of focus. And then you use one of the more modern high resolution displays, PC or Mac, and you go, yeah, that's crisp. You watch TV now on a 4K HDR screen. It's like, wow, that looks real. So screens have gotten a lot better. But you know, there's another input device you use, another something you use every time you use a computer that has gotten worse. And I think everybody agrees they've gotten worse. Keyboards. Keyboards. And Apple's the worst. Apple's keyboards are horrible. So I did a strange thing the other day. I went to a website called clickykeyboards.com. And I bought <laughs> I bought a 28-year-old keyboard. It's an IBM M-series keyboard that are widely considered by keyboard connoisseurs to be among the best. Not maybe the best. The predecessor to the M was the F series that some say were better, but uh, they're, they have an odd layout. This is the this is the 104 modern keyboard layout, so that's good. For it was, I guess, for an IBM PC, right? The thing's heavy. Things like almost six pounds. It's bulky. It's a beast, and it uses this key technology uh, that is looks medieval. It's what they call a buckling spring keyboard. And so under each key, there's literally a spring that as you depress it, it compresses like a spring normally would until it gets to the point where it can't compress anymore and it goes boing. It's, it's, it's jumps sideways. You've seen springs do that. You press, 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 and go boing. Well, normally that's a defect, right? But in this keyboard, that's what it's supposed to do. When it springs sideways, there's a little hip check. It closes the switch and the key is typed. A buckle, it buckles, a buckling key. Now, we've come up with, everybody seems to think, a better, better system since then. You know, your, most keyboards nowadays have a rubber dome 
that you press. This makes much more sense. I don't know who thought up this buckling key is a very strange technology. The rubber dome it makes sense. You press the key, the dome compresses like a little air bubble, and it closes the switch, and that's the keystroke. They're softer. They last a long time. You can have less travel, which is important because we're making computers thinner and thinner. But you get to the point sometimes where it gets too thin. Somebody said, I think it was Casey Johnston, she, she's, she hates the new Macintosh keyboards, that Apple's suffering from design anorexia. The, the kind of almost at this point psychotic desire for thinness to the point where you're losing functionality. Apple's laptops are so thin, <laughs> they don't have room for the keys to move. So they had to develop a new switch. They call it the butterfly key. And a switch that just, it locks that key in place. It's very solid, very rigid. Travels about a millimeter, I think a little more, maybe a millimeter and a half. And then, boom, hits bottom, closes the switch, and you've typed the key. But it's, uh, for a lot of us, it's not it's not a satisfactory feeling. It doesn't move very far. It's all, I mean, you could compare that to typing on an iPad, where you're typing on glass, where there's no motion. That's even worse, right? It's hard to be accurate. You want a little feedback. You want to know that your finger is depressed a key. Something's happened. Maybe a nice solid chunk. That's for us old school types. Now, if you ever used a typewriter, it's even worse, right? A manual typewriter, you literally are flipping up a lever boom, that hits the paper, the plate, and boom, with an audible clack. These aren't quite as clacky as that, but this is the Model M key. You want to hear what a buckling? This is. This will remind you of visiting the Department of Motor Vehicles. That's that's <laughs> that's that sound. And actually, I think ergonom ergonometric folks ergo ergonomics is a study of uh, motion and uh, and in the body say that these these keyboards are better for you, less likely to cause car, what they call carpal tunnel syndrome within the... I don't know. Is that true? They're sure more satisfying. You know you hit a key. It's like a sledgehammer. Weighs like a sledgehammer, too. Maybe this is my protest against the Apple keyboards. There's another bigger problem with the Apple keyboards, which Apple's finally admitted, which is that if a crumb gets under this little tiny key, there's no way to get it out. They, you, have, you have to pretty much replace the keyboard. And uh, guess what? It turns out a certain percentage of computer users, I don't know who would do this, eat croissants and cookies and crackers and Cheetos when they're typing. And they get under the keys quite a bit. <laughs> There's food. Yes. Who would do that? No, you should be in a clean, sterile environment washing your hands. I'm sure that's what Apple thought when they tested it. They needed to get some Cheeto users in there to test it. People eating their Fritos, Doritos. Biscoff cookies. Get them in there and test it. Then see what happens. Apple said, all right, all right, we'll replace your gosh darn keys or your entire keyboard if we have to. It's expensive because Apple also, when they made these special keyboards, they glued the battery to the back of them. So when you when you can't take the key caps off, it'll break them, especially the space bar. So they can't really just oh, take them apart and clean it with a compressed air as you used to do in the old days. No. They actually have to unscrew the entire computer and take the top off and replace it for $700. It's a lot for a $1,400 computer. Give me buckling springs. <laughs> or, uh, I, guess I, I guess I'm officially an old, an old guy now. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip? into amateur radio history?
I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available online at www.twiar.net. In our last installment, we saw how, when the FCC created the Technician Class License back in 1951, their intention was to give it a separate and unique purpose. The Commission stated that the Technician Class License was established expressly for serious-minded experimenters who needed spectrum space in which to conduct their tests. It was not established as a communicator service and was not to be a stepping stone between the novice and general class licenses. The original technician class operator only had privileges above 220 megacycles. In 1955, they were given 6 meters, and in 1959, the 145 through 147 megacycle segment of 2 meters. Getting additional frequencies for technicians was difficult. The petitions could not mention communications as a reason, but rather had to show that there was a need for additional experimentation on the 6 and 2 meter bands. Because of the experimental nature of the license, technicians were not allowed to become racy stations. They also faced some discrimination by a few higher class amateurs. In fact, several proposals were made to the FCC to punish technician who used the airwaves to communicate rather than to experiment. In 1962, two events occurred. First, the FCC denied petitions to give technicians the 29.5 through 29.7 megacycle segment of 10 meters, as well as full 2 meter privileges. In rejecting these petitions, the FCC stated there was considerable misunderstanding about the role of the technician class and restated the experimental policy they had issued back in 1951. Also that year, a new amateur publication hit the market. VHF Horizons. Concentrating on six meters and above, this magazine was full of technical articles, construction projects, contest information, and VHF news. But it was the editorial content of VHF Horizons that broke new ground. For the first time, an amateur magazine called for a rewrite of FCC policy. They wanted technicians to be considered full-fledged amateurs and not just experimenters. Naturally, this caused controversy in the amateur community. Technicians who considered themselves communicators flocked to this new publication, while some higher-class amateurs condemned it and restated their position that communicating technicians were violating FCC policy. Unfortunately, VHF Horizons was not able to turn a profit and expired after only two years. In 1967, the FCC instituted incentive licensing. While the actual frequency loss by technicians was minimal, just the first 100 kilocycles CW segment of 6 meters, the FCC still struck a blow to those wishing to remove the experimenter status from this license. The FCC once again turned aside requests to expand technician privileges to the full 2-meter band. In 
In addition, the FCC also removed two-meter voice privileges for novices and took away the right for an amateur to simultaneously hold a novice and technician license. According to the commission, too many novices were operating two-meter voice, were not increasing their code speed, and were upgrading only to technician instead of general when their novice license expired. Once again, the 1951 policy was restated. However, despite the FCC's position, thousands of technicians were on the VHF bands as communicators. With the rise of 2-meter FM, new technicians were taken to the airwaves every day, mostly with surplus wideband commercial equipment. Recognizing that the role of this class of license had evolved, the ARRL Board of Directors met on November 1, 1969 and came to a decision. In an editorial in the December 1969 issue of QST entitled, Technicians as Communicators, the ARRL's new position was stated. Technicians were no longer experimenters, but rather full-fledged communicators. The ARRL proposed that they be given the full 2-meter band, the 29.5 to 29.7 megacycle segment of 10 meters, and the ability to once again hold a novice license simultaneously. The ARRL put these proposals before the FCC in a petition. The FCC did not immediately respond to this petition, but rather, in 1971, issued an odd ruling in which they stated that a technician class amateur could not use a repeater in which the input was in the technician subband of 145 through 147 megacycles, but the output was above 147. Nevertheless, since the repeater subband in the early 70s was 146 through 148 megahertz, and the technician was not allowed above 147, the FCC was under pressure. On October 17, 1972, technicians were given the 147 through 148 megahertz segment of 2 meters. The FCC denied technicians 10 meters, novice privileges, and the 144 through 145 megahertz segment of 2 meters, but the door was opened. With thousands of technicians on 2-meter FM, the FCC then moved slowly towards full VHF privileges for them, realizing that the experimenter designation was obsolete. In 1975, technicians were given novice frequency privileges. When the new repeater subband was opened at 144.5 through 145.5 MHz, technician privileges were expanded to 144.5 through 148 MHz. The FCC also realized that technicians could no longer be excluded from RACI's operation. In 1976, the FCC eliminated the mail order status of the technician exam and required applicants to show up at an FCC examination point. Finally, in 1978, technicians received full 2-meter privileges. In the eyes of the FCC, they were full-fledged amateurs. In 1987, the exam was made easier by splitting Element 3, the general written exam, into 3A for technician and 3B for general. Also in 1987, technicians received sideband privileges in the 28.3 to 28.5 MHz segment of 10 meters. And in a final act of technician liberation in 1991, 40 years after the license was established, the code-free technician was created. So, if you meet a technician who has been licensed since the 1960s, 
Treat him or her with dignity and respect, for they have suffered and endured years of being ostracized so that today's technicians can enjoy full VHF and UHF privileges. In our next installment, we will look at the development of repeaters and repeater regulations. I hope you will join me. On Friday, April 17th, the Radio Society of Great Britain, working in partnership with the NHS, is launching a new campaign called Get on the Air to Care to support the emotional health and well-being of 75,000 licensed UK radio amateurs, just a small fraction of the amateur population worldwide. Paul Devlin, NHS England Emergency Care Improvement Support Team and RSGB District Representative said, Now more than ever, we need to optimize all modes of communication to help reduce loneliness and isolation within communities. Amateur radio provides a wonderful, unprecedented opportunity to help make this a reality. World Amateur Radio Day this past Saturday, April 18th, celebrated this innovative global community. Whilst amateur radio evolves continually to include technologies which are at the forefront of modern radio communications, radio amateurs can get on the air to care with a simple handheld device. Steve Thomas, M1ACB, General Manager of the Radio Society of Great Britain, explains, please help to increase amateur radio activity through club and repeater group nets, chatting with your friends, or just by calling CQ. As you get involved in Get on the Air to Care by being more active on the radio, please share your photos, video clips, and news with us via commsrsgb.org.uk and also on social media using the hashtag GoTAC2C. The new Get on the Air to Care webpage is https colon forward slash forward slash www.rsgb.org forward slash GOTA2C. GB1NHS, the UK's National Health Service radio communication station, will be on the air as part of this campaign, so listen out for it. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio on Finer Repeater Systems Nationwide. This is the propagation forecast for Friday, April 24th. The quiet sun we talked about in last week's forecast is still with us. Not only are there no sunspots, there are no coronal holes to speak of. Even so, the solar flux index is still holding at 69. The quiet conditions are expected to last several more days. So take advantage of the great conditions on the low bands if you can. On VHF and UHF, conditions are still quiet there, with one exception. There are reports of strong band openings on 2 meters and up in southern Louisiana and Mississippi. These conditions are expected to last for the next several days and possibly move east into Georgia and Alabama. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. As we start to reach the end of the stay-at-home orders and return to work, there will be less free time out in the yard playing satellite or even indoors playing radio. Have you listened to a few of my updates and have a question? Feel free to email me, kk5do at awrl.net. There's also a plethora of information that can be had by asking a question 
on the AMSAT EB. To join the AMSAT EB, go to AMSAT.org, click on Services, and then Mailing Lists and Services. In the first sentence, click on Mailing List Services. You will find a list of many mailing lists that are satellite related. Many lists are closed, however, you might want to join ANS, KEPS, or, of course, AMSAT BB. AMSAT BB will allow you to see what others are talking about and ask questions of the community. Need to know which HT would work on an FM satellite or what antenna is in your price range for working the satellites? Ask the AMSAT BB. There's virtually no waiting. You almost get the answer in a few minutes. You might even be pointed to a previous post that answers all your questions. Archives of the AMSAT BB go all the way back to 1998, so there is plenty of history and information to peruse should you be bored. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. The 2020 ARRL and Tapper Digital Communications Conference, originally planned for Charlotte, North Carolina, will take place as an online virtual conference on the same dates, September 11th through the 13th. Details of the virtual DCC will be announced in the coming months as plans are finalized. Plans call for holding the 2021 conference in Charlotte. Tim Duffy, K3LR, has announced that Contest University, USA 2020, will be held online via Zoom on Thursday, May 14th, starting at 1245 UTC. Contest University 2020 is free. The Contest University course outline has been posted online. Connection details to the Contest University Zoom bridge will be posted on the Contest University site one week prior to the beginning of the sessions. The sessions will be recorded for viewing anytime after May 14th. Slide decks will be posted on the Contest University website as well. At the end of CTU 2020, Dave Sidall, K3ZJ, will present the 2020 CQ Contest Hall of Fame Awards. The landscape of education in the United States has been greatly affected by the pandemic, as school systems and universities have been forced to move entirely to remote learning. Teachers and students have had to make dramatic adjustments to their teaching and learning methods. After considering these educational challenges, along with travel restrictions and restraints on the ability to gather in groups, ARRL leadership feels it's appropriate and necessary to cancel the 2020 Teachers Institute sessions. ARRL looks forward to bringing back this important program in 2021. Foundations of Amateur Radio When you start life, you learn early on the difference between being told about an experience and the actual experience. There's a saying that comes to mind. I use it regularly in my day job. In theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, while in practice there is. I thought I'd do the quote justice to see where it came from. Not from Einstein, who was three years old at the time it was coined, and neither Yogi Berra or Richard Feynman had been born. Quote Investigator puts it in the Yale Literary Magazine of February 1882 and attributes it to Benjamin Brewster, but I digress. A little while ago, the regulator in Australia altered the rules of engagement in relation to amateur radio for people holding the licence that I do. All Australian amateurs are now permitted to transmit digital modes. Not that this should have been any impediment to the exploration of the receive side, but I had a few other things on my plate to try. 
still do. Over the weekend, I sat in my driveway with my radio and had the urge to see if I could actually do some PSK31, a digital mode that had a low entry barrier, since there were defined frequencies and I could use a decoder on my phone. So, I set about doing just that. I had already programmed in the various frequencies into my radio the week before. I hadn't actually heard any signals, but that didn't deter me. I set about getting myself set up for what I'm calling a driveway hack. Picture this. A folding table with my radio. A stool next to it with me on it. The radio connected to an antenna, a vertical that was attached to a neighbour's roof with a magnetic mount, and my phone running Droid PSK. I was tuned to the 10 meter PSK frequency, had the volume turned up, holding my phone next to the speaker, watching the waterfall. Nothing. I called up a mate who had this all working, and we set about troubleshooting my setup. He made some transmissions. Nothing. I listened to the 10 meter beacon, loud and clear. He made some more transmissions. Still nothing. Then we realised, while I was switching back and forth between the beacon and the PSK frequency, that his radio was set up for a different standard PSK frequency. Gotta love standards, there's one for every occasion. Changed my frequency, and for the first time I could actually see stuff in the waterfall display on my phone. If you've never seen a waterfall display, it's a tool that helps visualise the signal strength of a chunk of spectrum over time. It's pretty nifty, and a waterfall displays a lot of information. Starting with colour, the idea is that a colour represents a particular signal strength. Red for full signal, yellow for half, blue for the lowest detected signal, and black for no signal. Fill in the gaps with the colours of the rainbow. If you represent a line made of dots, with the start of the line at say 0Hz, and the end of the line at say 3kHz, you could split the line into 300 dots, and each dot could be coloured to represent the average signal strength for a little 10Hz slice of spectrum. If you wait a second, move the line you drew down, and then measure again, you'd end up with two lines, the line from now, at the top, the line from a second ago, below it. If you do this every second, you'll end up with lines flowing off the bottom of the screen. The oldest lines at the bottom, and the newest ones at the top. That is a waterfall display. Over time, you'll start to recognise what a particular signal looks like on the waterfall, and there are even modes where you can draw on the waterfall, but I'll leave that for another day. As I said, I could now finally see signals on my waterfall display. I'm not going to dig too deep here, because there's much confusion in the language surrounding all this, and I intend to get the names straight in my mind before I express them here. But after figuring out that you have to tell Droid PSK which signal you want to decode, I finally managed to decode the transmission from my friend. After putting on some headphones and realising that the clicks I was hearing from my phone were actually artefacts from the speaker, I also managed to transmit a CQ signal which my friend decoded. He then acknowledged my call sign in his next transmission. So I now have two screenshots, his and mine, showing that we both saw each other using 10 meter PSK31. There wasn't a signal strength exchange, mainly because I've yet to figure out how to determine that and where it's visible, but for all the things that matter, I managed to contact with PSK31. Thanks to Randall, Victor Kilo 6, Whiskey Romeo. Very exciting.
Since then, I've started experimenting with decoding WebSDR, that's HF signals coming in via the internet, and being decoded on my computer from the web audio. I'm still working on that, but there is so much to learn and play with, and a transmitter isn't yet needed to have fun. I should mention that you can also decode satellite signals like this. Digital modes, just when you thought that the rabbit hole couldn't get any deeper. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima Alpha Bravo. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. So what tools should I bring is a question I often find myself asking. Unlike changing the oil in the car, I can't always bring all the tools I want to when working on a tower. Lots of folks use a hanging tool bag. I don't use one, so I don't get to carry all my tools. I have to anticipate what I may need to bring along. The job sort of dictates what tools I'll need. I often wear a light windbreaker with two large zipper pockets on the front, and that's where most of my tools and supplies ride during the climb. The basics I usually carry on first-time installations are pliers, vice grips, wrenches in standard sizes, one locking razor blade knife, two small variable wrenches, one multi-purpose belt-mounted hand tool that includes screwdrivers, cutters, and a knife. I also bring several rolls of coax seal and electrical tape. Some extra stuff I always bring are a AA battery-powered HT and an earbud speaker. I bring two loop-type canvas climbing straps, extra carabiners, a camera with film and battery. I photograph my work for the customers. Many of them seem to really like that. When working on an installation I'm not very familiar with, I use extra straps and safety gear just in case. If the tower you're climbing on has a steel safety cable, but your ascender is made for ropes, the ascender will slip down or not lock with downward pressure. Always be sure to bring extra carabiners if for nothing more than to secure each ascender where you climb to so they don't slowly, silently sneak downwards. There are two basic types of applications for ascenders. For climbing with a steel safety cable, the regular rope type ascender won't latch properly. Climbing with a steel safety cable ascender on a rope, the rope could get damaged by the tough clamping action of the steel cable type ascender. Always be sure you are using the proper type of ascender before climbing. An ascender is a device which is slipped over a rope or cable and is connected to a climbing belt. As the climber goes higher, the ascender slides up the cable but if pulled downwards, it grips tightly and holds in place. Many commercial towers have safety cables. Before you use a safety cable, check it and be sure it's in good condition. When climbing down on the same ascender, you must grab its handle and lift upwards to release the catch and then push the ascender down as far as you can reach, then climb down to it. An additional safety device you could use would be a carabiner from your harness to the safety cable in case you unknowingly became unattached from the ascender. I hear from lots of people about a fear of climbing. I always tell them the same thing. 
After you get above the treetops, you lose the sense of gaining altitude. Just like riding in a commercial airliner, if the plane gained or lost altitude, maybe a couple thousand feet, you would have no way to tell just by looking at the ground. The same thing is true for tower climbing. The change in the way things look is so gradual, it's hard to tell you're getting higher from the air. I'm always too busy paying attention to what I'm doing and how I feel. I seldom pay attention to the scenery until I get to where I need to go. It's difficult to look straight down since the tower blocks most of your view. It's easy not to ever see the ground directly below you. I think a healthy respect for heights can help keep you from taking unnecessary chances with safety gear too. So don't let a little fear stop you from taking care of your own tower work. What you should be afraid of is climbing without the proper safety gear and training. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. France's National Frequency Agency, ANFR, has described how they responded to a case of interference to one of the downlink signals from the Galileo GPS constellation. A translation of the report reads, on February 13th, ANFR was alerted by a company in Drome. Its activity, the development of professional GPS and Galileo equipment for high-precision geolocation, was disrupted by interference. GPS and Galileo belong to the GNSS family of devices, standing for Geolocation and Navigation by a Satellite System. GNSS is crucial for localization, but also for synchronization in many sectors of activity, including transport, rescue services, telephone, and internet services. This is how GPS and Galileo became essential to a growing list of industrial, professional, and personal applications. Before calling on the ANFR, the company victim of the interference had itself characterized the interfering signal in order to verify that the problem was not due to an internal malfunction. These measurements, carried out using a portable spectrum analyzer, had even determined the direction from which the emission came, as well as its characteristics. A pulsed interference, centered on the frequency 1581.15 MHz, which affected receiving GPS L1 and Galileo E1 signals in the frequency band centered on 1575.42 MHz. The agents of the regional service of the ANFR of Lyon intervened on February 25th. They first noted on the spot the existence of the interfering signal. Then, thanks to the goniometric receiver of their laboratory vehicle, they left towards the origin of the interference. Soon, the receiver identified the building from which the signal was coming. Continuing on foot with a portable receiver, fitted with a directional antenna, they arrived at the door of an apartment on the ground floor. The occupant of the premises, an elderly lady, allowed them to enter her accommodation. Soon there was no longer any doubt. It was simply an internet box. It emitted undesirable radiation in the frequency band reserved for GNSS. This box, although defective, continued to provide adequate access to the internet while interfering with a sensitive frequency band reserved for civil aviation, defense, and space. A request has therefore been made to the operator to remedy this defect. New equipment was in place within three days. In the meantime, the victimized company understanding had however accepted that the user could continue to use the culprit for a few more days. Without it, 
she would not have been able to phone, watch TV, or connect to the Internet. According to a report in the New Indian Express, amateur radio operators in Kerala State in India have joined the fight against the virus pandemic. The newspaper said that the district administration has enlisted radio amateurs to improve important communication between departments and offices. Upwards of 20 hams are involved, organized into teams. Radio Amateur Society of Ananthapuri President Dr. Zakir Hosan, VU3, OOH said using ham radio during the time of crisis would help coordinate crucial communication. We have assigned our teams at the district medical office and administrative subdivision offices, Hussein told the paper. We have a team at the district administration, which is the center of all the action. He said helplines now in operation receive many calls, including distress calls. If anyone is in need of emergency medical care, we immediately inform the respective Talak office and the ambulance desk so that the help reaches in time, he said. The Times of India reports that a radio amateur in West Bengal drove 98 kilometers to deliver medicine to an elderly resident in Rahara. We have been providing assistance to people ever since the lockdown was announced said Ambrish Nag Biswas, VU2JFA, the secretary of the West Bengal Radio Club. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. Facing a growing demand for amateur radio exam sessions in a time of social distancing and stay-at-home orders, sponsors of some volunteer examiner teams have risen to the challenge and are developing systems to remotely proctor test sessions. Many of our VEs and VE teams have been working on remotely proctored exam session ideas, employing both video and in-person components, following social distancing protocols, ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, said, We have been receiving interesting and innovative suggestions, and we appreciate the dedication and ingenuity our examiners have shown. The Spalding County Amateur Radio Club in Georgia is among those that have come up with plans to remotely administer amateur exams while complying with ARRL VEC testing standards during the stay-home mandates and social distancing guidelines. Current systems leverage Zoom video teleconferencing technology, the fill and sign feature of Adobe PDFs, reliable email, appropriate computer equipment and internet connection, and no volunteer examiners present at individual remote test sites. The Georgia Club collaborated and shared ideas with the Emergency Amateur Radio Club in Hawaii, which has successfully conducted sessions since 2011 with its own remote testing system, initially with paper exams with a proctor on-site, and now with fillable PDFs with no on-site proctor. The Georgia Club obtained ARRL VEC approval to administer video-supervised exams. 
The club's David Robinson, K4WVZ, said the first exam session took place this week, with another set for next week, and many more in the pipeline going forward. We have started with testing just one candidate at a time, but are planning to ramp up to multiple candidates, probably two or three simultaneously, Robinson told the ARRL. Before we do that, we want a few more single sessions under our belt, and a few more video VEs trained. It also gives us an opportunity to garner lessons learned from each test session and upgrade our procedures accordingly. Robinson said this week's session went exceedingly well and the candidate passed the test. The club's procedures entail a pre-exam video interview with candidates to ensure they understand all the requirements and procedures. This also allows us to test the candidate's ability to work with video and computer technology before the actual exam, Robinson explained. Training sessions were conducted for VEs to make sure they understood their role and how to use the technology. Following the exam, the VEs score the test and sign off on the paperwork with the VE team leader submitting the application online and by mail per ARRL VEC instructions. Application and successful exam are first accepted and then submitted to the FCC for processing. Meanwhile, New England Amateur Radio, NE1AR, an affiliate of New England SciTech, has taken it one step further, Soma said. It got the approval of ARRL VEC to begin trials of what it describes as completely online testing with strict rules and protocols for maintaining the integrity of the testing environment. NE1AR is limiting candidates to one exam per candidate due to the current candidate backlog and the difficulty of administering exams online. Candidates must agree to a list of protocols, which include no visitors or pets in the exam room and a cell phone camera scan of the entire room and exam area to show that there are no materials or people in the room that could aid in taking the exam. If the VE team suspects the possibility of cheating, the exam may be terminated and the candidate barred from future online exam sessions. We began a series of trials on April 1st under ARRL VEC review and have now been asked to help train more VE teams on the process, NE1AR President Bob Finney, K5TEC, told the ARRL. We have now tested 12 applicants and are still working on streamlining the process. We are working with the software developer of the exam delivery system to help them adapt the system for video supervised testing. At present, Finney said, only one person at a time can be tested. Another time-related issue is how long it takes a candidate to go through the NE1AR security protocol. Sometimes, the setup and follow-up for an exam take far longer than the exam itself in order that we provide complete integrity of the exam session, he said. With pressure continuing to build to provide testing compatible with stay-home guidelines, ARRL VEC manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, has asked the amateur radio community to be patient. Please remember that with the introduction of significant new processes such as these, that there should be proof of concept 
establishment of protocols and procedures, and beta testing before expanding to a larger audience, she said this week. Soma said video-supervised exam sessions require a different skill set than in-person exam administration, and not all teams will be equipped to deliver video exams right away. ARRL is pleased to be one of the leaders in providing an opportunity, although limited initially, for video-supervised exams in this time of social distancing and isolation, required by the current health situation, Soma said. The landscape of education in the U.S. has been greatly affected by the current pandemic as kindergarten through high school colleges and universities have all been forced to move entirely to remote learning. Teachers and students have had to make dramatic adjustments to their teaching and learning methods. After considering these educational challenges, along with travel restrictions and restraints on the ability to gather in groups, the ARRL leadership feels it's appropriate and necessary to cancel the 2020 Teachers Institute. We look forward to bringing back this important program in 2021 so that we can continue promoting amateur radio in the classroom through their education and technology program. And finally this week, it turns out that a Welsh radio amateur copied the Titanic distress call, but authorities did not believe him. This past April 15th marked the 108th anniversary of the Titanic disaster. As the passenger vessel was going down, Frantic shipboard radio operators transmitted repeated distress calls. Arthur Artymore, MNX, near Portland Fraith, Wales, heard one of the calls for help. CQD, CQD, SOS, DE, MGY, position 41.44 north, 50.24 west. Require immediate assistance. Come at once. We have struck an iceberg. Sinking. At that time, operators used CQD, standing for Come Quickly, Distress, and the standard SOS interchangeably. MGY was the RMS Titanic's call sign. The then 26-year-old Moore picked up the distress calls from the stricken ship thousands of miles away, and, as recounted in the South Wales Argus newspaper, he raced to inform police about what he'd heard, but the authorities would not believe him. It wasn't until a day or two later that the grim news reached the shores of Great Britain. More than 1,500 people died in the tragedy, including some prominent individuals, on the voyage from England to the U.S. on the Titanic's maiden voyage. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.